We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the chapter read in the book of the Revelation. And we shall read from verse 7 just now. Revelation chapter 19 from verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God, and so on. Let us be glad and rejoice. And uh, you will see in the context that this is so contrary to what we have been previously considering when Babylon the Great falls, all the laments from around the world, in the society of men, the kings, and the great men, and the rulers, all lamenting the sudden destruction and fall of Babylon. Now we have uh, things that are happening in heaven so different to what is taking place on earth. And in the chapter 19, John says at the beginning of the chapter, After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. How wonderful this must have been to John to actually hear the sound of heaven itself. We read so much perhaps about the details, the symbolic details of heaven. But John focuses on occasions on the sounds that come from heaven. And here we have this glorious sound as a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, while Others are mourning and lamenting. Alas, alas, here in heaven the sound is so different. Alleluia or hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at his hand. And then we come down to this glorious sight. And if you and I were to stop for just a moment and think of all the great events that have taken place throughout history, and all the great events that men would consider themselves privileged to be present at. There is absolutely nothing, nothing imaginable that could possibly compare with what John refers to. Let us be glad while there is great mourning over the fall of Babylon. Let us, in heaven, let us be glad and rejoice. What is the cause for the rejoicing and the gladness? Give honor and rejoice. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb is come. The marriage of the Lamb is finally come. And his wife 
hath made herself ready. She is now in a state of readiness to be received, to be taken by Christ as the bride that he sought and the bride that he bought. She hath made herself ready. Everything is now finalized, and the great ceremony begins, as it were. Let us rejoice that it has come to this, the marriage of the Lamb. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the linen, fine linen is the righteousness of sins. Little wonder then that John hears this voice. Verse 9, he said unto me, write. Now where is John writing? Or to whom is he writing? He's writing to the seven churches in Asia. And he is writing to encourage them, to warn them, to exhort them, to inform them. Now he says, write to John to the seven churches and tell them, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. They are the most blessed people who will attend this great marriage supper. But we have to understand the context in which John is writing these amazing truths. This cause for us to be glad and rejoice is because of everything that has gone before that leads up to this great event. And as we have been considering what has been going on in John's world and in the future world, among the kings and among the nations, little wonder they are rejoicing because of the opposition, the persecution, the darkness and the blindness of a society, the deception and the worship that is given to the beast, and so on. The darkness is so great, and so many are devoting themselves to the worship of the beast, and so on, that this is a great marvel. Christ has a bride, and he has brought his bride right out of this society out of the midst of all this chaos and all this darkness and in spite of all the powerful, mighty forces of hell, he has come to this. Let us therefore rejoice and give him honor because he deserves it. But remember this, as we have noted John is living at a particular time in the fulfillment of the prophecies of others who have gone before him. And if we might just uh, go back uh, to the book of Daniel, to chapter 7 for a moment, and this is one of the things that is rather sad regarding the pulpits of this day and generation in which we live. There are those who just simply ignore God's word and deny its authority anyway. But then there are others and they claim they believe it. And they believe it's the word of God and yet there are so many portions of it and so much of it it is just simply ignored or set aside because they feel we are too spiritually minded to give much attention to these other matters that are not really spiritual matters. As, for example, in Daniel and 
other parts of the scripture, there isn't mention of the Messiah directly, but uh, there are the records of the information that God gave regarding the nations and the powers and rulers of the earth. And there are those, and they say, ah, we just want to hear about Jesus. Just tell us about the cross. Don't bother with this history. Don't bother with this prophecy. That's not so edifying. The fact of the matter is, Jesus said of his own disciples, and it applies to all his people, they are in the world. And there is no escaping out of it. Jesus said, while they are not of the world any more than I am not of the world. Their relationship to the world around them is the same as mine. But he says they're in the world. They have to live in it. They have to witness in it. They have to meet with its opposition. They have to understand where that opposition is coming from. And they have to understand in the light of the teaching of Scripture the contrast between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom that the Messiah comes to set up and establish. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, if it is not of this world, in what respect is it not of this world? How different is it? How does it contrast with the kingdoms of this world? And so on. The church must survive by the grace of God in the midst of all the changing scenarios in history and in this world so that It is foolish to simply ignore where we are or what we're up against or what we have to contend with as the church of Jesus Christ. Now going back to Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel was a man beloved of the Lord. We have Abraham as the friend of God. Daniel is the beloved of God. And Daniel was given the privilege of receiving information regarding this world and regarding the future kingdoms of this world. And there are four great powers that are presented to him in vision form. One of the great powers is mysterious to Daniel. And it it affects his mind deeply because he can't fully understand what it means, what the significance of it is. In Daniel 7, you have these four beasts appearing And in verse 15 of uh, chapter 7, this is what Daniel says. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body. It was as though what he saw had such a deep, deep impact upon him. It affected his very spirit. It was disturbing. It affected his body as well. You perhaps know from experience when you're troubled and tried in your mind, it can affect the body as well. And this is how Daniel describes himself. It was deeply disturbing. And he says, the visions of my head troubled me. Whatever this signifies, it was troubling Daniel. There was 
in that vision things that he didn't understand, but he knew whatever they mean, they mean trouble for the church of God in the future. So, Daniel in verse 16 says, I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me to know the interpretation of the things. So now there's going to be an interpretation, leaving us uh, not in darkness, but with information of what lay ahead of the church since Daniel's time. Verse 17, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth, or arise uh, from among men. We've been looking at the beast that rises out of the earth. These are great powers that rise out of the earth from the chaos among men. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast. Daniel didn't ask about the first beast or the second beast or the third beast. He's very inquisitive regarding this fourth beast. I would know the truth of the fourth beast. Now, if Daniel is told the truth of the fourth beast, then likewise, we're told about it. We are given the interpretation regarding this fourth beast, so that we're not left wondering and scratching our heads, what on earth is this fourth beast? What does it represent? We're going to be told. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others. It is very, very different. And that's what probably troubled Daniel, the diversity of this fourth beast. It is very different to everything that has gone before. The rule and the power of this beast is very different and very diverse from all the other powers that have gone before. Exceeding dreadful. Well, if the powers before were dreadful, this is even worse. This is even more dreadful. Exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. It seems the power that is exercised by this beast is a most devastating power against which nothing is capable of standing. Then we're told... uh, and of the ten horns that were on his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell. So there's this progression within the power represented by this fourth beast. There are developments and manifestations of power and authority within the realm and the dominion of this fourth beast. Then we read, even of that horn that had eyes, or sorry, of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that speak very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Now look at the development. There's the great beast itself. It is ten horns representing ten uh, sources of power. And then we come down to three, and then one. We come right down to one little 
hard. Now, when Daniel would have looked or considered the kingdoms that went before, what would he have, what would he have seen or witnessed? What would you expect? You would expect maybe the kingdom to begin with a little horn and then advance to ten horns and so on. This kingdom, remember, is diverse from all that have gone before. And it would seem then its progress is entirely different. It's moving in a different direction until you come right down to this most powerful little horn. It may be little, but it is the most devastating of all. all. Three actually fall before it. But this little horn represents the brutality and the force and the devouring appetite of this beast to destroy and trample everything out of existence. Now, we read verse uh, 20, that it speak great things whose look was more stout than his fellows. That little horn is the fiercest and the most destructive agent regarding this fourth great world power or kingdom. Then we go down to verse 21, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. This little horn exists to oppose the saints, exists to oppose the church of Jesus Christ. This little horn, it doesn't appear outwardly to possess the power, the influence, the might of the larger hordes. But that little horn is far more influential and far more destructive in its power. And it prevails against the saints until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. They have overcome this little horn. Verse 23, then he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms. So that's what John is now living in and under. This fourth kingdom, if John were to read Daniel, he wouldn't think otherwise. He would think, this is where I am. And when he's writing to the seven churches, he's writing to them during the reign and at the time of this, the reign of this fourth beast. This beast that is eventually going to rule through the little horde. It shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. It shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. There will never have been such devastation as is wrought by this little horn, the power of this little horn. We're told the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall arise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first 
and he shall subdue three kings. Now, there's the beast representing a particular world power. But as that world power exists, so there is this diversion within it that there are kings rising and then there are kings falling, but finally there is this little horn, this what may appear to be an insignificant power that becomes so powerful that it actually tramples the earth of men. It treads down and it breaks in pieces. It is a most destructive force. This little horn shall speak great words against the Most High. This little horn is not just against the saints, but it is opposed to their God. And this little horn has no inhibitions whatever about blasphemy. It will speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. You see the way the power is exercised. It continues. It's relentless in order to wear down the saints, to weary them and to wear them down and shall think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time and so on. Now when we come to Revelation, what period of time that Daniel referred to is John living in? He's living in the kingdom, the fourth great world kingdom and power. And as John is writing to the seven churches, he has to write to them with the expectation the little horn is going to appear. And the little horn is going to exercise his power to wear down and to wear out the saints. And the future is going to be a time of blasphemy. The little horn is going to speak great words against the Most High. It is going to be a period of, as it were, uh, ruling power against heaven, against the throne of God, with no inhibitions about blaspheming God. Now, when we are reading then up until we come to chapter 18, you see the various developments describe the symbols that convey to us the great truths about what is happening in John's time and further on. And you see the judgments that are falling upon men. But we see the tremendous force of satanic power. The beast rising out of the sea, the beast rising out of the earth, the great red dragon gives his power to these beasts. Now you have to understand that every world power, no matter when it arises at any time in history, it is a power that is executed by men. Whatever kind of men they are, no power functions without men. And men, when they execute the power that they are given in providence, do it with a spirit that is against God or the spirit that is for God. 
And so we're told of the Spirit that motivates and activates the power represented by the fourth kingdom, and particularly the little horn. We are given some information regarding the developments among men, how they're influenced, how they're impacted by the pouring of judgments into their society. But we are told of certain satanic influences that arise and influence men. You have the time when out of the darkness of the abyss or the pit, we have, going back to chapter 9, the key of the bottomless pit is made used to open it. And verse 2 of Revelation 9, he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose as smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. But something comes out of that smoke, and there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth of power. Here is a mighty satanic plague, a plague that is going to have a tremendous impact upon human society, upon men and women of the earth. We are told that out of this smoke comes this plague of locusts. But as we said at the time when we were considering it, they are no ordinary locusts. John describes them as locusts with a power that ordinarily locusts just don't possess. Locusts have a destructive power, that is correct. Everywhere they go, they destroy, they devour everything. Daniel was talking about this fourth power, this fourth beast, is going to be destructive. And that is what we see here, a force of destructive power. But it is here seen by John symbolically as like a great plague of locusts. But there was given power unto them as the power of scorpions. And we're told how these Locusts appear. It was given to them that they should kill men and so on. Verse 7, the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. These are fighting locusts. These are warring locusts. These are powerful locusts, and they are at war. Their shapes are like unto horses prepared for battle. Now, it is difficult to actually imagine the, the outward uh, uh, resemblance that John is here presenting to us, locusts that look like horses. Locusts, a plague of them, prepared for war. But then, on their heads, where is it where, crowns of gold and their faces, where is the faces of men? They appear like men. They're locusts, prepared as horses for war, Yet they have faces like men. They, they appear to be very human even when they're going to war. They had hair as the hair of woman. There was, as it were, this feminine side to them. This apparent 
gentle side to them. They looked in appearance as those who were gentle, yet they are prepared for war. And we're told their teeth, where is the teeth of lions? They look like women, very gentle. And yet as soon as they open their mouths, they have teeth like lions. That would be a sight and a half. We are told they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots and of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions. Whoever saw us a a locust like that. But this is what John sees The real danger, you hear that saying, the sting is in the teal. They look like men, they face, they have hair like women, but they have a sting in the teal. And that's what John is to write to the seven churches about. Then later on, as he describes further the diversities. Remember what we're considering. This kingdom is diverse from everything that has gone before. So we can expect all kinds of strange events and scenarios within the existence and the history of this kingdom. We have then... Three unclean spirits, we've noted that in chapter 16. Three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles. This is another satanic force, as it were, operating against God and against the church of Christ and against the saints of God. So you can see how diverse this fourth kingdom is from anything in history that has ever gone before. It is diverse because of its extent Remember, if you look at the previous three kingdoms and you see the extent of their influence in the world of their day, this fourth kingdom is diverse because history has moved on and we're now speaking about the kings of the earth, the powers that be, these spirits of devils working miracles, are influencing a much, much wider area. This is a very diverse kingdom. Now, the center of this kingdom is Babylon, as we've looked at. And we've considered the spirit of ancient Babylon traveling right through time to the very day of John. And the great city of Babylon, we recognized it as the great city in John's time when Martin Luther was sent on a a pilgrimage for his own spiritual benefit to Rome. This was apparently to help him spiritually to work out some of his spiritual problems. And Luther himself testifies to the fact that after his long journey, when he came in sight of Rome and he looked into the distance to the great city, he was fascinated. It was known in his day as the eternal city. The eternal city. It's going to last forever. But Luther testified that before he left it, he was confused because of what he witnessed, the corruption and the immorality 
and the awful ignorance and the blasphemy, Luther went away very disappointed in what he found in what was supposed to be the eternal city. Have you ever known of any other city in the history of men to be described as the eternal city? The only other eternal city that is ever mentioned is the city of the New Jerusalem. But here is the city that men imagine is going to last forever. It'll outlast every other city. And today when you see the attitude of presidents and kings and monarchs and rulers, how they want to come to Rome, how they desire and seek an audience with the Pope, the supreme ruler of the eternal city. They all want to be there. There is this significance attached to Rome, the city that John knew all about. The city that uh, reigned over the kings of the earth. Now, there was no other city in John's day that ruled over the kings of the earth. And yet, in that fourth kingdom is a satanic working that will eventually produce the little horde. There was no Pope around in John's day. There were the Caesars. They were the rulers of the fourth great power and empire. But as their power increased, and as the church was spreading and the gospel was spreading, I don't have to tell you, the opposition began to increase. And what we read in Revelation 17, the description of the woman, mystery Babylon, the woman that is riding upon the scarlet-colored beast, if we are to trust the historians and the accuracy of their accounts, and it isn't just one historian, but many to confirm what others were writing, there's absolutely no doubt whatever that the city of Rome, ruled by the Caesars, was a city of blasphemy and immorality and utter corruption. <coughs> the Caesars... Suppose most we just think maybe of Nero or uh, someone as infamous as that or Caligula, uh, these persecutors of the church. They were men of brutality and they were men, we read of the woman and uh, she's decked with gold and precious stones and pearls having a golden cup in her hand and so on. Everything speaks of splendor and glory and, uh, uh, as it were, wasteful uh, expenditure. The emperor Caligula, he drank pearls. Pearls were very important in Roman society, he drank pearls crushed into his wine. And when there were great feasts, that was one of the uh, items on the, on the menu. Pearls, costly, costly pearls that were crushed into the wine. It was either... Caligula or Nero, that at one of his great feasts, the very bread and the roast had gold in it. 
the very bread they were eating had gold baked into it. Nero had to have a change of garment every day. He never wore a garment more than once. When he went out to travel, he had to have a thousand carriages every time he went out to travel. And the mules had their hoofs, their shoes, were of silver. This was the kind of waste he never, when he would order a feast, it had to be worth $40,000 in today's money. Forty Just for one meal. You imagine. It is said of one of the very short-lived emperors, Vitellius, that he, and he was an emperor for less than a year, he spent $14 million almost all on food. You imagine. This is the Rome of which John is being told. It is uh, said of Caligula that one occasion he spent $200,000 just in one day, threw it away, wasted it in just one day. Many of you, even the children, will have heard of Cleopatra. And when she was there at one of the feasts, they had a pearl worth $120,000 crushed into her goblet of wine. That was the kind of lifestyle of the great and the mighty, the power of the city, the eternal city of Rome. So when we come to John 17 and read the description of this woman riding in this beast, representing this great power that is dominating the kings of the earth, it is perfectly accurate. But remember, this kingdom is diverse from any other. And in this kingdom it will be so diverse that there will arise a little horn in it. And that little horn will be more, more vicious than anything that has gone before. Now the persecution of the church was through the likes of Caligula and Nero, we've heard of Nero, having his great garden feasts and Christians were rounded up and covered in pitch and then set in fire to light up the great garden parties. Christians were worth very little. They were thrown to the lions. They were devoured in the arenas and so on. Life was cheap, particularly that of the Lord's people, Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ. In that system then, there arises a particular emperor, Constantine. He's just a little insignificant, or he's the, the king, but he has in his kingdom a little insignificant bishop. That bishop becomes mighty powerful because Constantine becomes supposedly a Christian. Never has this happened before. Never been. A Christian supposedly at the head of the previous kingdoms. It is diverse. And Constantine (coughs) waits until his deathbed 
before he's baptized. Because you see, until he was baptized, he could just live the old life. You see, baptism would remove his sins. And so the near he waited until his death, well, the more cleansing effect his baptism would have. But you see, because he was supposed to be a Christian now, and he is very sympathetic with the Christian church, what happens? He begins to endow the church. He provides finances to build Christian places of worship and cathedrals. But he calls councils and he calls all the leading bishops who at that time would have been not like bishops today, call them together and then he tells them, you are the bishops within the church, I am the bishop without the church. And he was involved then in the running, the organization of the church. He could influence. But he made the church powerful. He established and secured the church. And the church began to become rich and wealthy that it had never experienced before. This is a most diverse kingdom. You never know what's going to happen next in it. But then what happens? Well, the Caesar is in Rome. He's not in Jerusalem. The great center of power in this fourth kingdom is not in Jerusalem. It's in Rome. And so although the church had its beginnings, the New Testament church had its beginnings in Jerusalem, The bishop of Jerusalem begins to be sidelined and now the great power begins to manifest itself in Rome. And then when there's disputes and there are any divisions or any debates, the church turns to Rome. And the bishop of Rome begins to become very, very powerful. He has the backing of the emperor. And there is begun a relationship between the Roman emperors and the bishop of Rome. Eventually, we can't possibly go into all the history That which started off so insignificant, just like the little horn, begins to exert power, begins to become cruel, begins to oppose the truth and begins to blaspheme God in heaven, taking titles that were blasphemous so that the popes eventually are recognized as God on earth himself. We don't have time to mention the blasphemous names that the popes began to uh, take to themselves. But it's a well-known fact. You could go to Rome today, to one of the great museums in Rome, There you will see all the triple crowns that have ever existed, worth millions and millions of dollars. The triple crown worn by the Pope, he's become so powerful that he now rules spiritually and ecclesiastically and politically the most powerful ruler in the world. Kings have to come. Uh, You know, Napoleon had many, many faults. And Napoleon had this vision that he was going to establish the great empire of Europe. 
And in the early 1800s, it's interesting to, I was just thinking of it, you all have heard recently of the great fire that destroyed the great cathedral of Notre Dame. And the pictures that were conveyed of the fire and so on, what did you see? Thousands of people out in the streets, some weeping, others on their knees praying and weeping and going over the rosaries. They were so devastated by the destruction of this great cathedral. It was in that cathedral that the kings were anointed and crowned who would rule what became known as the empire. Whenever Napoleon uh, subjected the Pope of Rome, he addressed the Pope and required him to come to the great cathedral in Notre Dame to crown him as the ruler of the old uh, empire. It would have been the Second Reich. Hitler established the Third Reich. But what did Napoleon do? Everyone, the great audience, there was the Pope and all his cardinals around him, all their power and pomp at the great altar. And everyone was waiting for Napoleon to be crowned. And he went up and they expected him to do what everyone before had ever done, to kneel down. Napoleon marched forward and just took the crown right out of the Pope's hands. Charlemagne and others before had worn that crown. And he took it and he just turned his back on the Pope and the Cardinals and the altar and he crowned himself. Indicating that now the church is subject to the state. That was a terrible blow for Rome. Now remember, we're looking at a kingdom that is diverse. Diverse from all the other kingdoms. We read here of the beast that had the wound, and the wound was healed. Now, if we have to Understand these are symbols. And they are symbols to convey realities in the movements of history involving the church of Jesus Christ. Rome has had its knocks. It's had its suppressions. Yet it survives. And even at the present time, with all the scandal that is turning many poor Roman Catholics against the church. We can be sure that Rome has hidden resources of power. The great plague of the locusts. What in history has ever represented what is symbolized there in those locusts, like unto the order of the Jesuits. The Jesuits will even claim to be superior to the church. They save the church. They maintain the church. They protect the church. Therefore, the church of Rome depends on them they actually will enable the church to survive. 
Now that plague of Jesuitry has advanced right throughout this whole globe into every country, infiltrating into every form of government. We hear about the Second World War, the terrible atrocities. We hear about what happened at Auschwitz and places like that. What is hidden, and this is one of the real dangers, it is a recognized fact today that the the rulers of the world, presidents, kings, monarchs, they want their sons and their daughters to be educated by the Jesuits. They want them to be educated because they figure that's where they'll get the best possible education. And it is very interesting at this present time when you think of the parliamentarians and uh, the leader of the Labour Party, Mr. Short, openly acknowledges the influence of the Jesuits upon his policies and upon his thinking. Listen, uh, uh, just a quote from Adolf Hitler. He would never have been in power without the Jesuits. He could never have climbed to power without the support of Rome. More than once he referred to the influence that the Jesuits had upon him. This is what he says on one occasion. Above all, I have learned from the Jesuits. And so did Lenin too, so far as I recall. The world has never known anything quite so splendid as the hierarchical structure of the Catholic Church. There were quite a few things I simply appropriated from the Jesuits for the use of the party. That's his own admission. It's a very interesting thing. The involvement of the Jesuits, known as the men in black, The structure of Hitler's armies and forces were like the structures, the hierarchical structures of Rome. And it is interesting to see the uniform of the SS officers who were started and influenced by the Jesuits. The black uniform, because they're always the men in black. You have the Jesuit bishop in uh, the Slovak, the leader of the Slovak at the time. It's hard for the young ones. Maybe countries have been all changed after the war. Nazi party, uh, Tyso. He was a Jesuit prelate And this is what he said on one occasion. Catholicism and Nazism have much in common and they work hand in hand to reform the world. They work hand in hand to reform the world. Now, you might think, well, these things, listening to them, they're not much of an exposition of Scripture. That is true. But the Bible is warning us that these things were going to happen. And the party that would suffer would be Christ's church. 
and his people. And the opposition would be to Christ. And you have to know that the present Pope is a Jesuit. The Jesuits have been rewriting history for many decades now, seeking to erase the evidence of their vile activities. The present Pope is the new face of the plague that came out of the mouth of the pit. He is the new face of the plague of locusts. And you can see how powerful his influence is. And yet, he represents the harlot church. Now, before the great marriage of the Lamb can take place, and he takes his pure bride to himself, what does he do? He destroys the harlot. He destroys the harlot who is competing against the church, the pure bride of Christ. He removes her. He destroys her so that there is no opposition. And then he takes the church that he is one with his own blood. The church that has been martyred and persecuted and opposed and has persevered, now is called into the presence of her Lord. The great marriage of the Lamb has come. Let us be glad and rejoice that the great whore has been destroyed. And the bride of Christ has been preserved. Oh, the opposition intended. The lamb will have no bride. We will destroy her. But in the end, the lamb prevails. And he has his bride. And the harlot is destroyed. Time is gone. We must leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy And eternal God, we thank thee for the reality of thy word, the accuracy of its prophecies, the details and the information to inform thy church that we might be warned of what to expect, that we might put on the whole armor of God that we might stand against the wiles of the wicked one in our day and generation. Do thou enable us then to be trusting in thee, and may each of us be found at last among those who are blessed, who are at the great wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride. Bless thy truth, pardon us, receive us for Christ's sake. Amen.